you would, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. For our text today, our message entitled, Royal Approach. A little more than 10 years ago, myself and a few others made our way from the city of Amritsar, India, to the border of India and Pakistan in the northwest part of the country. It's a little city in the Wagha village where the main highway that connects India and Pakistan crosses the border. It's there that every day, two hours before sunset, a one-of-a-kind ceremony happens like nothing else as they prepare for the closing of the border. It starts off when you visit feeling like quite the serious affair. There are several checkpoints to even make it to the event. A separate line for foreigners, passports are required. There are heavily armed guards for all who want to come and partake in the closing of the border. It's been established for decades, a monument of peace, a moment to keep the balance of powers as they close the gates. And then suddenly, once you're through the checkpoints and you you get to the actual event, the scene completely changes and it's an atmosphere like nothing else I've ever experienced. At the middle of it all are, are two decorative, ornate gates, not over the top, just entry iron gates, both that can shut about six feet apart. But this is not just an ROTC, changing of the flags. No, there's a a whole pomp and circumstance that goes along with it. I'd say if I had to describe it, it's like one part border battle, one part festival, one part soccer match, two parts dance-off, and three parts high school pep rally. (laughs) You think I'm kidding, but the, the road for the border comes straight into a grandstands built, much the shape of this on the India side, as if it was coming through those back doors and on into Pakistan. And five times the size of this are the stands that hold the gallery that cheer every night. Each country has clearly gathered the most impressive of their guards. They seem to be, they seem to be measured primarily by their flexibility and their ability to grow an incredible mustache. If I had stretched a little longer this morning, I might mimic for you what it is exactly they do. But they begin to high step and march on both sides with officers whose knees come up to their nose as they full sprint at the gate. Surrounding this on both sides are these enormous grandstands, and I'm not belittling their cultural experience or what's being taking place here. Trust me, the crowd is just as irreverent as I am about this whole thing. There are concessions being sold. There are yell leaders with microphones on both sides. Water, popcorn, ice cream, what do you need? We got flags of every size to wave. It's a 45 minute parade that manages to take turns being ferocious and ludicrous and touching all at the same time. On both sides, the guards wear these elaborate turbans topped with huge fans. These complicated uniforms and shiny black boots as if it wasn't already apparent that they looked like strutting peacocks in a competition for a mate. 
They snort and stamp and their eyes are crazed and their mustaches out to a point. They walk up to the gate at full speed and stomp their feet like a gunfire. Lift their fists at one another with crazy eyes. It's a little bit like a Samoan haka dance meets race walking. (laughs) The crowd, they love it. It's a pep rally on both sides. They're chanting their country's name back and forth over the border gates. In India, they're being led Hindustan. On the other side, Pakistan. Back and forth they go, like they're getting ready for the big game that night. And the whole thing isn't so much combat. It's not so much about getting the flags down or closing the gate. It's, it's more theater than anything. It's as much for the crowd who's watching as it is for anyone. In today's text, we come to Luke's account of Jesus' own approach to the city gates. His own procession recorded in every gospel account as each one of them with all their different emphases and all their many points of view converge on this one moment that's included in all four. Not even his birth story is in all four gospels. But here they come together and for so many around the world it's the beginning of Holy Week. And what begins on Palm Sunday will journey to the cross and on to the empty tomb as we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. And we join Jesus in Luke chapter 19 as he plans his own approach to the city gates. And it's as much theater as anything. It is a foreknown event, the fulfillment of prophecy 500 years old. But I also want to draw your attention to more than just one of Jerusalem's city gates. You're likely familiar with this Palm Sunday parade here at the western gate of Jerusalem. But history tells us that there were two processions that entered Jerusalem on this spring day in the year 30. They weren't rival powers meeting at the border. They didn't stomp at each other, but the procession we celebrate today presents us with a crossroads, an intersection that the first hearers of the gospel and every hearer since has had to choose between. See, just as Jesus prepares to enter the western gate at the same time, there was Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor of the region and several regions around it. He normally lives in Caesarea by the sea. In this time of year, the Passover time of year, when something around three million Jews would make their way to Jerusalem for this giant festival, Pilate would make an appearance. Not because he was there to serve or to celebrate the Passover feast, but because Pilate wanted to come to prevent any trouble that might take place. After all, the whole point of the Passover celebration is to commemorate that one time back in history when God liberated his people out from under Pharaoh's foot. Rome would hardly want anyone to get any grand ideas about liberation or overthrowing empires. And any number of groups there in Jerusalem would be intent on making sure that Pilate got the welcome that he deserved. You see, in the Jewish region of Judea, it's almost certain that people would have been mobilized, gathered together from the top of society all the way down to the bottom to ensure that Pilate's 
procession was appropriately met. If you were among the Sadducees, it was from your group that the high priest was chosen, appointed as ruler over this area, and it's Pilate himself who chooses that high priest from amongst the Sadducees. You can bet they were interested in making sure Pilate saw they were at his parade. If you're a Pharisee, you know that all that you do in the temple and all of your ministry is done at the behest of Rome. And so the Pharisees would have had a, an interest in being at Pilate's procession too. And you can bet that both of those groups are mobilizing the many lower class peasants who they could possibly instruct to come and to celebrate the fanfare for Pilate. And whether it was sincere or not, Pilate would have expected a splendid welcome. He would have brought quite the display with him too. He had a large entourage that would have featured soldiers, infantry, horsemen. It's hard to say how many, but with the size of the crowds that we know were in Jerusalem, we're talking about something near a thousand troops marching with Pilate. Each one fitted with a large shield, a breastplate, a headpiece, swords, a spear, two axes. You add to them the number of administrative officials, the other personnel. You can imagine the imprint this would make on the city of Jerusalem when Pilate shows up to make sure everybody stays in their place. And so this imperial procession imposes itself on the city at Passover, arriving from the west upon a military horse with an armed escort. And meanwhile, on the other side of town, approaching from the east, Jesus plans his own parade. In the text, the Bible tells us in every gospel and here in Luke, that so clear are the echoes of the Old Testament prophecy that none of the crowd around him could possibly miss it. They knew from their hearing of the scriptures that what was being done in front of them had been spoken about long ago. Luke leaves it somewhat implicit, but Matthew quotes it directly. It's straight from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is rehearsing before these first disciples and every disciple since that he is the true and rightful king of the world and that what is taking place is the foreordained plan of God. And so Luke 19, 28 tells us, that as he approached two small towns, Bethany and Bethpage, he picks two disciples and he puts them on the donkey detail. Now, I like to think, we don't get told which two it was, but I like to think it was the same two who had just previously asked if they could sit on his right and on his left in glory. They wanted a special role. James, John, you still want that special task? I've got some muck I need you to trudge through on your way to get me a colt. And he told those two disciples, verse 30, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and there as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord 
has need of it. All four Gospels tell us this story, and all four place at the center of the events a donkey. I might add at this point that nowhere in any of the Gospels does it say that Mary rode a donkey to Bethlehem. But we don't forget that one somehow. Four times, all four of them say, Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. He's walked his whole ministry, every time on foot. This is the first time he's riding anything. He's almost all the way there. He, he certainly isn't using this for the purpose of transportation. And so for six verses, Luke offers us unprecedented detail about a donkey. First, Jesus says they'll find him tied up. You see, when Jacob prophesied about the promise of Judah back in Genesis 49, 11, he said they will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He knows what he's doing. He tells them next that if anyone asks why they're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Literally, you might translate that, its Lord needs it, as if to say, I am the Lord of that colt as much as I am your Lord. And so every disciple, the two who go to claim the donkey, will have to make a theological statement just to follow Jesus' instructions. It's also the kind of claim that a king can make to anything you own. Any true king has the right to requisition your property for whatever purpose he sees fit. And Jesus is exercising his divine right to conscript animals from his subjects if he wishes to ride on them. But why a donkey at all? Why not pick a, a noble steed? Something a little quicker. Something that could carry more than just one man. His entire ministry... Jesus has been waiting to reveal in fullness who he is. And in this calculated event, one mile or so from where the, the whole thing is headed, he suddenly pauses for a ride. And Jesus' Jewish followers would not have missed the symbolism. It comes straight from Zechariah that this predicted day, they were seeing before them the humble and lowly king who comes and presents himself on a donkey as the true king of the world, the one who is able to save. Jesus, well, Luke tells us next that in this entry march that is to be a royal procession, he will ride an animal never ridden before because that's what royalty does. And no one is more regal than this Jew. And thoughtful Jewish followers would have, reminded, would have remembered that, that years before Solomon himself came riding on a donkey as he was anointed as king. Solomon, his name meaning king of peace, even as David's name meant king of war. Jesus knew they could remember that, so he presents himself as a king riding on a donkey, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, making known who he is and what kind of king he will be. Verse 32 said, so those who were sent away found it just as he has told them. It all happens just as he describes. The, the text repeats itself to make sure we don't miss it. Everything happens just as Jesus says. He's a man who knows where he's come from, who knows where he's headed. 
And these events are all happening in accordance with God's purposes to redeem the world, and so will what is to come next. And they take off their coats at this point, and they throw them onto the donkey. They fashion for him a saddle. Luke tells us they get the message, but because before Jesus can even get on the donkey himself, they grab him and they put him on it. They can see it. He's the Messiah. This is the king from David. And verse 36 says, as he was going, they were spreading out their coats on the road. Luke leaves out the branches and the palms we get in every other gospel, but he makes it clear they were preparing the way on the road for him to walk on it like a king. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had already seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're shouting. Maybe they're even singing. Because Luke quotes directly from Psalm 118, a hymn from Israel's history for a royal celebration of enthronement. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, 26. Luke 19, 27 says they've seen the miracles he has done and they've realized that truly God is at work here. He's the king and he's the the one who will save us. And not only that, Luke wants us to know what kind of king he will be. And so he places in the lips of the crowd the echoing words from the beginning of his gospels that were first on the lips of the angels who welcomed him. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest heaven, peace, they shouted. You see, he is a lowly and humble king. Zechariah 9 continues, See your king comes, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. He will be a king of peace. And the contrast could not be more clear. Pilate mounted a war horse and came galloping through the largest gate in the city. And Jesus is riding on a donkey colt nearing the small eastern gate. Pilate's decked out in armor, banners waving in an entourage of elites. And Jesus has no armor. And the only procession he brings with him is this ragtag crowd of followers he's already gained back in Galilee. Pilate comes flaunting his power, glory, and the force of an entire empire that ruled the world. And Jesus' procession comes revealing the kingdom of God that commands peace to the nations, the end of chariots, the end of war horses, and the breaking of every bow. Pilate comes with a, a military display of imperial might. Jesus comes with coats on the ground and and children waving palms. And I wonder today, which gate do you think felt the most power 
pass through on that day. The one through whom Pilate's war horse passes or the one the Messiah walks through unannounced. The only robes for this royal come from the torn robes of former lepers or others smelling like fishermen. There's no scepter, only palm branches, no magistrates or princes, only tax collectors, and the once demon-possessed, what a strange crowd he brings. And if you were in town looking for a king, I wonder which parade you would choose, which procession you might join if you wanted a future, if you wanted a life. I'm here to tell you today that every triumph and success or policy of every Caesar is long forgotten. And Christians around the world will remember for all of time, this day, the day that King Jesus came to Jerusalem and presented himself as king of the world. And Luke doesn't mention it, but the other gospels make it clear. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosea, nah, save us now. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Quiet them down. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these stones become silent, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I can, I can make the very rocks you've cobbled together into this road sprout mouths and sing my praise if I need to. The noise they make isn't a problem. In verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. You see, the whole thing is too much for the Pharisees, and, and they want Jesus to, to calm everybody down, but Jesus knows that God is at work. And all of this happens as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, makes his way near the city gates. And in that moment, it, it feels like everything is happening just right. All of this struggle in the Gospels to reveal who he is. He keeps telling them, wait, don't say it yet. Keep quiet. Tell no one. Go home. The time is not yet. And finally, the parade we've been waiting for all the way through the story. And we've called this procession a triumphant Entry. And sometimes I think we get the impression that the whole city worships and adores Jesus on this Sunday before Good Friday, as if every voice in Jerusalem thought he was king and then changes their mind. But Luke and the others with him make it clear that the Hosannas don't come from the city streets, they come from the group that comes with him. It's the disciples, the crowd that he brought from Galilee. They're the ones praising him, king. In Matthew, yes, the, the city stirs when he gets there, and they ask, who is this? But they don't take off their coats over it. No, Matthew and Mark tell us Jesus comes into the city and takes immediate aim for cleansing the temple. And make no mistake, Jesus will have his triumph. He will have his victory. But this is really more of a, a royal approach than a triumphant entry. 
Jesus is performing for them the reality of his kingship. He's not the king the masses want, though. And no moment is this more clear than the very next verse. The moment the praises quiet down, Jesus looks up and sees Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps over it, saying, if you had known this day, the things which make for peace. He weeps because he can see disaster coming. They can't see that their salvation, their redemption, their life will not come from the ways of this world or the might that enters the western gate. The city whose name literally contains the word for peace doesn't know anything about it. And they haven't seen it when it marched up the streets. So Jesus weeps. And somehow Jesus weeping over Lazarus is more famous but these are the tears that should grab us. Before we dare wave a palm or, or take off our coats and throw them on the ground, watch as the world's king with his eyes glimpsing the city stops and begins to cry because they don't want, want King Jesus after all. And the kingdom he would bring if they welcomed him in would disrupt their lives so much that they would throw him out in a heartbeat. Two processions. Two processions made their way into Jerusalem that Passover season. And as those who seek to be faithful to Jesus today, we're forced to ask ourselves which parade would we be a part of? And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and presents us with a confrontation, a crossroads of two kingdoms. And we'll follow it all the way through the last week of Jesus' life, right up to the end. But it's a moment of reckoning now for us. Jesus' closest followers will shout, he's, he's the king today. But what they really mean is he might be the king I want. And by the end of the week, they'll abandon him because they're blinded by the way that the world normally works. And so this can't be how it's done. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His hands formed the rocks with his right hand. But when his kingdom no longer fits, they throw him off his borrowed colt and toss him into a borrowed tomb instead. And so do we. Every time we praise his royal approach, but deny him entry to the throne. And it might be easier today. It might actually be more simple. If there were two gates and two processions, and I had a 50-50 shot at getting this thing right. But as it turns out, in my life experience and yours, it's not two or ten. It's more like 2,000 different processions that are vying for your attention and arguing for the right to rule over your life, each one with a different distraction, a different reason why the way of Jesus can wait until later or just won't work or need some of the, the world's logic added to it. They couldn't possibly really mean that. So we shout, Hosanna, save us now. And when we don't get the results that we want, we run back to the kings of this world. And Jesus comes on this Palm Sunday and presents himself as king in every city and every heart that he might be welcomed as king. 
king of peace who comes lowly and meek riding on a donkey and he weeps. He weeps for every one of us who will walk away from our hosannas when he isn't the king we wanted. He weeps because when it clashes with our policies and projects, our our dollars and decisions, our loves and losses, we will walk away from the kingdom of God. He weeps because he knows that many who shout praises today are unwilling to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. He weeps because he knows that the, the lure of our own economy and ingenuity and sin so easily entangles and that when it becomes difficult or dangerous, we will choose another way or another gate or another procession or a different parade that leads where we'd rather go. He weeps because he knows how many will fall for Caesar's charade and that broad is Pilate's gate that leads to destruction and many will enter through it. If you had only known the things which make for peace and they don't see it and so he cries and he weeps And he keeps walking towards the city as if to say, I will have to go and show them. My throne will be a cross. My only crown will be of thorns. And perhaps they will come to see that the parades and the processions they join in lead only to death. And it's here at the cross and here at my empty tomb that they could find life. If they would have me be their king, the kind of king that I am, not the king that they want. And you can join with Jerusalem in rejecting him as king. You can join the masses who missed it all together, or you can open the gate and welcome him as Lord and let all things be subject to his feet and his will and his humble kingdom that comes today. Hosanna. Save us, O King, the one, the only one, who is able. Let us pray. Father, we fill the streets in praise today. And we pray that it would be authentic praise, glorious praise, praise that welcomes you as the King that you are. And Jesus We sing Hosanna, and we sing blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and we invite you today to be Lord here and now. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.